All right, so we're going to go ahead and continue in our study. So we're on our title slide uh, for the series, and it has theology at the top. Really, this uh, design here, um, the art design, is not really for the whole series. Um, Doctrine of God is our... Hello? That Okay, hold on. Let me... Okay, I don't know if I have to wake this up or not. It's non-responsive. Hold on while I... See what's there. We go. Okay. Sometimes I think it gets off that window. You know, like when you have layered windows, and the one on top's the one you can actually work with. I I just went and clicked on it to make sure it was the top one again. So I don't know what happened there. Um, did that work? Okay. Actually, let me take it off. That no, but still wasn't. It worked in a sense, but it. Okay, so I think we're going to be okay now. There we go. Okay. Uh, But anyways, uh, as I was saying, the artwork on this uh, doctrine of God, that's just one area of theology. And so there'll be other areas uh, besides that one. And that one I just happened to find, we we, uh, as a church subscribe to what's called share faith, which uh, um, amongst its services provides a lot of artwork that can be used uh, by people like myself. Um, And so... I'm kind of, it'd be kind of nice if I found something like this for each of the areas. But for example, there's doctrine of salvation, doctrine of man. Uh, there's a lot of areas of, of teaching that's there. But we've started with uh, teachings about God himself and his character. So we have here uh, the character of God um, called this lesson two, but it's part four lesson two. So we've done four weeks on lesson two. Okay. We've got 86 lessons, and we're going to average four per lesson, so we'll be done with this by time. You know, we're all senior citizens. <laughs> no. uh, it won't take that long. There's, there's, I mean, there is and there is, and there's not really a, a student material um, available. Um, I do have a book. In fact, I have it over in my office um, right now. And it's called Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Um, We're not going into the detail that he goes into. um, So I'm just using it as a resource. Uh, The book is that thick. And um, it's so it's got a lot. Um, I don't think the reading level is that bad. So it's not, you know, not like, wow, that's too deep. Like he's lost me there. I don't think you'll get that uh, feeling. And I don't think it's super expensive, um, but it's not set up as um, like the student materials that you would often maybe see in a Sunday school class on that. I'm actually, um, I'm designing the lessons each week, so I'm pulling material from different sources. And um, so it's not a set Sunday school curriculum per se, um, as would often be the case on that. Um, So let me... uh, move us along then and how about as a warm-up here um, we'll probably uh, begin and end today's with this kind of thought so why why would this matter you know why does it matter uh, studying uh, some about God's uh, character and there's more than one answer to that but um, I'll throw out one answer and word it this way Um, it helps because we need to align our thinking with God's thinking and our, our ability to understand truth and reality 
depends upon our ability to arrive at the right answer to truth and reality. If we, so we've understood enough so far in our attributes of God to know that God's really the one who establishes truth. And so this, it's kind of funny, and you know, we've had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years for mankind to try to figure out what is truth. Remember that question that Pilate threw out there at the trial of Jesus when he says, what is truth? I, I, I kind of wish I could hear his vocal tones when he said that. Um, like, what, what did he mean by that? Was it like, sincerely, what is truth? Or was it kind of snarky or sarcastic? Yeah, what is truth? Like, there is no truth. Some people are kind of like that now, where there's no set truth. Um, there's truth for you, truth for me. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, one of the greatest sins is to try to tell someone they can't have their own truth. To be, in a sense, judgmental or you know, to judge someone else's truth as unacceptable or not true. Uh, so it seems to be in our society uh, what some would lean towards, that no one can say that anyone's truth is actually truth. But this is not what God presents in the scripture. So what God presents in the scripture is that he is truth himself, and he is the one who defines truth. Okay? And uh, I kind of think sometimes, um, say, you, go, you, you have someone that ends up in court, and they stand before a judge, and what frequently happens is if the judge doesn't rule the direction that you want, you say to yourself, and I, I'm speaking to like, you know, gen, general, not you personally, you might not say this, but I'm talking about just in general, people would often say this, ah, I disagree with his decision, he was wrong. Um, I think it would be much more rare for someone to say, oh, I see you are telling me that what I did was incorrect according to the law. I now see the light, and now I understand, and thank you for that education here in court. I appreciate that. Most people that would land themselves in court probably don't think that way. Um, for example, um, the only time, I've never been on a jury yet. Some of you have not had that luxury of getting out of jury duty, and I don't know, maybe you enjoyed it. I actually kind of think it might be fun to be on a jury just to do that civic duty and then just see what that experience is like. The closest I went to it is I did not get excused. You know, you call the night before and, you know, a lot of times you get excused. I didn't get excused. So I actually went down to the courthouse here in town and then they went through rounds and then I didn't get excused from that right away. Uh, but so I went inside and had to sit there and they had, um, I think they called up 14 of us, but not me. And they sat up there, and then they started going through the jury selection process, and um, ended up not. I wasn't never was one of them. They didn't eliminate enough of them there to get to me. They wanted us sticking around in case they needed us. Uh, but I did hear enough of it to. Uh, I was actually kind of glad I didn't get called to that jury because I already heard enough of it to have the fun of finding out what the trial was going to be like. And I was already pretty sure I knew uh, that I would vote for the person to be guilty. Um, because what it was is just a local guy um, who liked to do art. He liked to work with things like sheet metal and do art things. But he objected to the idea of having to get a business license. So you just go down and pay your business license fee, whatever that is, you know, 100 bucks or I don't know. And I admit, I don't really, you know, get great joy out of paying taxes. I know, you do. Okay. 
paying DMV fees or whatever. I know, you, you like that. I don't actually really care for that that much, but you do, okay, but that's fine. Uh, most of us don't, though. Uh, but we're in an unusual crowd here. Uh, I mean, I get it. He doesn't want to pay it. He, he, he objected to it. He was, he was kind of an ordinary uh, guy. It's kind of funny. At one point, he's standing up there, and the judge um, says um, that the defendant has pleaded not guilty, and, and he said, I object. <laughs> and then the judge was sitting there thinking for a moment, said, okay, correction. The defendant refuses to put in a plea of any kind so the judge, the, the court has entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. <laughs> the, the guy just objected to the whole process. He like, I'm not going to cooperate in any way. I'm not going to even plead guilty or not guilty. I am not cooperating with any of this. He had no attorney. He was objecting the whole process. But here was the deal. It didn't matter. Object all you want. You still have to obey the law. And if you're going to refuse to, you're going to get in jail. Uh, it didn't matter. The only person's opinion in the whole room there that mattered was either the jury or the judge. And no, you, know, you can go in there and say anything you want. But it's kind of that way with God. I mean, to object all a person wants. In the end, God's the judge. And his is the only opinion that's going to matter, especially on day of judgment. And so it's, it's super important for a person, if they don't want to, in a sense, wind up in court and be sentenced as guilty, by the judge whose opinion you can't challenge and whose decision you can't reverse and whose power you cannot overcome and so whatever sentence you get you cannot get out of well maybe it would uh, be very advantageous to a person to find out what will work in that judge's court and get familiar with them and of course that's what um prosecuting attorneys and, and uh, those attorneys that are defendants, uh, de what do they call it, de defense attorneys, um, it would be very good for them to try to understand the laws and understand the judge and even understand the jury so that you can design a case that's going to work out in your favor. So, But anyways, that's what we ought to do. Know God so we can know truth. Know God so that we can be on the right side of things as he's going to be the judge of all these things in this life and the life to come. And so it doesn't matter if we say, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. God's the judge of what's sin and what isn't. And so it doesn't matter. And that's one example of where sometimes we get off track because maybe we excuse sin. We say, well, that doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. What question is, is it a big deal to God? What's his view of it? What would he say about it? What would be his uh, reaction to that? Would he, would he level any kind of a punishment on that? Or maybe he would level a reward on that? And so I would throw that out as kind of a warm-up thought that it matters that we know God uh, because our standing before him depends upon our aligning ourselves with what he says truth and reality are. Okay, so we'll go into our lesson today. We've done a lot of character traits of God, and we're going to continue with that, looking first at uh, the word wrath. Okay, so now I'll read a statement. Uh, and so, uh, Beth Ann, this would be an example from that book, the kind of things that if, if you're thinking, oh, I might be interested in purchasing that book. 
can look intimidating for fatness, but you can actually just go to the part you want to read. And that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm just looking at different sections. I didn't start at page one and read all the way to where I'm at right now. Um, I went to the section on uh, the, the teachings about God, and I started there. So I'm, you know, I think I started somewhere in the 100s, and so now I'm up around page 200 now, a little bit past that. But here's a quote from him to give you a feel for some of the uh, things he mentions. If God loves all that is right and good, and all that conforms to his moral character, then it should not be surprising that he, he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. God's wrath, directed against sin, is therefore closely related to God's holiness and justice. Now these are a couple of the, the previous attributes that we've talked about already. God is a holy God. He's completely good. He is a God of love, and and sometimes humans want to focus on that and think, well, a God of love then doesn't have wrath. But as uh, Wayne Grudem, the author of this uh, book, said, it should not be surprising to anyone that he would hate sin when it's diametrically opposed to his own character and to who he is. And since he's a lover of everything that is good and right, then it should not be a surprise that things that are not good and not right, that he has strong feelings against those things. So here's a definition that he gives of God's wrath. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. And uh, sometimes... Uh, I think I've already mentioned this point even today, um, as well as last week. Our thoughts towards sin aren't always God's thoughts. So oftentimes, we don't hate sin. Uh, Maybe we dislike it. Maybe we do hate it. Sometimes it depends on the sin. I'm sure there's some sins that we hate. Like, uh, perhaps we hate what's going on in Ukraine. Okay? But we don't necessarily hate all sins. In fact, oftentimes, with our, all of us struggle with our sin nature, we have certain sins that might be a little appealing to us, that we wouldn't mind tasting a little bit of that. Um, and uh, one example I gave is sometimes we wouldn't mind tasting that. Maybe we know we shouldn't do that, but maybe we taste it a little bit in the entertainment that we partake in, where we can, maybe we can watch that in a movie, someone else doing that. Maybe we wouldn't do that ourselves and get a little taste of that because we all have that tendency to look at sin as there is some pleasure there. And the Bible uh, recognizes this when Moses chose rather to suffer affliction um, with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But see, God doesn't get any pleasure out of sin. He doesn't say, well, I just don't do it because there's consequence, but actually it would be fun for a little while to do that. So our human nature looks at it that way, um, that I think we, we all could find some sin that we would enjoy doing, um, but we recognize, though, that the, the end consequence is a, a big problem, and the consequences aren't worth it. Um, but that really, if we, if we were thinking perfectly like God, we wouldn't actually even think that way. We would, we would hate the sin, period, and would not appreciate that at all. Uh, but uh, I thank the Lord that he's patient with us, that he understands that we're weak, he understands that we're dust, that we're just the created beings. And so he's very patient with us on this. 
And someday when our sin nature is eradicated, uh, when we're in heaven, then we can think closer to God. Uh, we can think at least more like him on the, the topic of sin. And so God's wrath again means that he intensely hates all sin. And so if we're trying to align our thinking with God, when we realize that something's not right, and yet we're, we're accepting of it in some way, um, then we recognize, okay, I'm not thinking the way he does, and the more I can think like him, the better off I'll be. And I don't think we can turn ourselves into thinking completely like God on, at all times on all occasions, but at least if that's what we're working towards or hoping to do, uh, the better off we'll be in that. And there's all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of the wrath of God. Some of them are narrative examples. I provide one here. It's the book of Exodus chapter 32, uh, starting in verse 7. Um, the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside uh, quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, to me, it's so amazing, but I think it's a caution to us. How in the world did this group of people even think to do that? I feel like it'd be a higher chance that I would do that than them. Because they had seen ten plagues of God, at the hand of God, these huge miracles in the parting of the Red Sea and pillars of cloud by day, pillar of um, fire by night, and yet they make these molten calves and say, hey guys, it's these molten calves that brought us, these are our gods, they were Egyptian gods, these are the ones that brought us out of Egypt and people started worshiping them. You're thinking, how in the world would that happen? Because they're sinful people. Uh, this is what we all potentially would have the ability to do if we are not Holy Spirit guided, if we're not staying close to the Lord. Uh, now, these people had spiritual problems all along the way. They were uh, described as stiff-necked, you know, very stubborn, strong-willed. Their hearts often weren't in the right place, so they spiritually they weren't in the right place. That's how they got swayed. They weren't spiritually minded. But if I continue uh, reading there. Um, Verse 11, Moses, actually verse 10, here's where you see from uh, God speaking. Now therefore, let me alone that, I, that my wrath may wax hot or grow hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. So he said, step aside, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses prayed to the Lord, besought the Lord, begged the Lord, um, in verse 11, and said to God, why does your wrath grow hot against this people, which you brought out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? And then he uh, proceeds to say some things to, to appeal to God, um, really based upon God's character and also God's reputation, saying, well, the Egyptians are going to, you know, if they go out and wipe them, they're going to say things against you, Lord. And remember the, the promise that you swore to Abraham, Isaac, and he appeals to God. And then in verse 14, it says, the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. 
now, not too long ago, we had a discussion on one like this. I think, uh, I believe it was when I um, used an example from alleged discrepancies of the Bible, I think, um, uh, which is another book that I have. Um, I shared an example uh, where sometimes people look at the Bible and say, oh, look, the Bible contradicts itself or says things that aren't true. Um, I think this might have um, come up in that discussion. But anyways, we have the word repented here. It doesn't mean he was sorry for what he had said. It doesn't mean he realized he um, had made a wrong decision. Uh, the word repent means a changing of mind or a changing of direction. Um, it's not even a change of mind like, oh, wow, Moses brought up some good points I hadn't thought of. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't do that. No, it wasn't like that at all. Um, to repent here is, is that changing from one thing to another. Um, it can carry, in human terms, it can carry the, the idea of, of realizing that you should go a different direction, like repenting of sin and turning away from that somewhere else. Uh, but with God, that's not the case. It also says here he repented of the evil. And the word evil here doesn't mean moral wickedness. God doesn't, he hadn't done anything wrong. God cannot do anything wrong. It's against his character. Um, but um, evil meaning uh, the judgment that he would have had. Um, we might say if you get sick, oh, that was, that was a bad sickness. So it's kind of used like that. We don't mean morally evil, like that was a corrupt, rotten sickness. No. It was not a good thing to experience. It would not be a, a good thing to experience judgment at the hand of God. And by the way, they, they deserved that. As we all deserve God's judgment because of our own sin, I mean, it would not have been unrighteous for God to consume them. Uh, he wasn't repenting of an evil thought. He had a righteous thought about his wrath towards sin. Um, it also um, highlights something, I don't want to get off on it too much, but it's kind of a little side point. It, it highlights something about God, that he, uh, something about the way he likes to operate um, that's always good for us to keep in mind, and that is God delights in answering prayer. And because of the prayer of Moses, he, through that prayer, answered that prayer and did not consume them. Okay, now, he knew he wasn't going to, that he wasn't going to consume them, but does that mean, okay, he was, he was uh, lying in the first place? Like he wasn't truthful about what he was really uh, planning on doing. Well, his plan all along the way, I mean, first of all, they deserved to be consumed. And if not for the prayer of Moses, would have been consumed. So there was, there was honesty there. They deserve it. And now I'm going to do it, but he didn't say... in. And I'm, I'm kind of trying to read between the lines here, but I'm going to say that um, per, perhaps in God's mind, it went something like this. And I always hesitate to, <laughs> to try to put words in God's mouth, but I think it's kind of along these lines. Moses, I am going to consume them, but I'm not going to tell you something here. That is, I, I know that you're going to pray for this, and if not for that prayer, I'm going to do this, but I know what's going to happen and you're going to pray for this, and I'm going to answer that prayer and not do it. And I know I'm not going to do it ahead of time. Okay. And it's, it's like um, you know, perhaps giving you know, someone a set of consequences. If you do this, here's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to do it. But then they don't do it, or they back off in some way. So really think that it's an example of the Lord wanting to answer prayer, and through the prayer of Moses, he did, uh, did that. 
And, uh, so, and we could, by the way, come boldly to the throne of grace, the Bible tells us. Uh, we could come boldly there. And sometimes you go boldly to God, praying to him based upon who he is and based upon what he's already promised. And God desires that. Sometimes that confuses me a little bit. Uh, there's a human logic uh, in my mind that might say this. Wait a minute. If God isn't going to consume them anyways, well then won't he do that regardless of whether I pray? And like, won't he, if God does everything he intends to do, why do I need to pray? But that's erroneous. Because God intends to do what he wants to do uh, sometimes because of our prayer. And so we need to cooperate with him uh, in that, and so, but that's okay. So let me get um, get things keep moving along here. But that's an example, though, from the Old Testament of the wrath of God. Here's a New Testament example. John chapter three, verse thirty six says this: He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him, or the wrath of God rests upon him. Now, we don't need to fear God's wrath. I say we. Well, that is, if someone's a Christian. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Um, speaking about people before, um, before they were saved, we were, past tense, we were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But the implication is now we've been delivered from that. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he hath raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And Romans 5.10, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so, that's the, that's the good news. Now, of course, um, as far as I know, everyone in here has a testimony of salvation in the room, and I never know who I'm talking to on, on the Internet. Um, but if there is someone out there that doesn't know God as Savior, well, there's a lot of uncertainty and perhaps fear that would come from that. But the good news is God gives a way of salvation, that we don't have to rest under the wrath of God uh, but the fact is, God is the judge, and he does have wrath against sin. And if we refuse to accept his offer of salvation, we will still be under God's wrath and ultimately under his judgment, which is a, a incredibly scary thing. Um, but he desires that we not have to face that. Okay? So then we have a, a second point um, here, a character of God, God's will. So how would we define, oops, I think I turned back to uh, see that. Okay, there we go, God's will. So uh, how would we define the will of God? Well, it's that attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. Okay, so uh, the will, it, in, it involves things that he decides, what he approves, what he determines to bring about every action necessary to carry out what he wants to see done. 
Um, so the definition indicates that God's will has to do with deciding and proving the things that God is and that he does. It concerns God's choices of what to do and what not to do. And, uh, and my mind just jumped back to what we, one, that side topic we've already talked about, prayer. And God desires that we pray. And even though he has a will, part of his will is to work through our prayers. And so, anyways, it was just a thought that came back to my mind. So our, what's our responsibility in this? I think a major responsibility we have when we recognize God has a will, uh, he approves and determines what's going to take place. Okay, this is tied um, some to God's sovereignty. Uh, sovereignty of God is his rulership over things. That a sovereign God rules. Nothing thwarts God. Nothing stops God. Um, no one challenges God and, and somehow thwarts his will, stops him in his tracks. Um, no one can do that. No one has the power to do that. Um, so what are we supposed to do as Christians? Submit to his will. Um, Jesus said, I always do the will of my Father. And so in an ideal world, that's what all of us are doing. We're doing the will of God. Um, Ephesians 1.11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, is uh, one verse that's an example of this. But as we try to understand God, um, try to understand his will, um, I think sometimes we don't pray according to the will of God. We pray according to our own will. But is our will submitted to God? There's a prayer that I've had um, students uh, ask me to pray for in the past that I, I could never really pray. It just felt wrong. Um, and I understand they're young and they're, they're not thinking this way necessarily, but it'd be when we're off to play another Christian school in sports. Pray that we win. And the thought I've had is this, well, wait a minute, if we pray that we're winning, and what if that other team's praying that they win? Are two sets of Christians coming to God and praying against each other? It just I couldn't quite bring myself to that. I could bring myself things close to that. Pray that we do our best. And if, if God would allow us to have a win, we would thank him for that. And we would like to win. Uh, but what if God wants us to lose so that we can learn lessons of how to deal with loss? Um, what's the will of the Lord on this particular game? And I don't think those are situations where it's so clear to me that I could know that God's will is for us to win. And today he wills for that other team to feel the loss so they can learn lessons from that. I, I mean, I think ultimately we ought to pray according to the will of the Lord. Okay. So our next uh, point is freedom. Okay. God's freedom is the attribute of God whereby he does whatever he pleases. And God has freedom, as we've probably already kind of obvious that he doesn't have to go to us and say, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Is that acceptable? Can we get a vote? How about a congregational vote to determine if God should do that or not? Um, God is not beholden to us. He's not doesn't have to answer to us for what he does. Uh, he has the freedom to do what he pleases. 
And Psalm 115, 3, is one verse that illustrates this thought, says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And so uh, God does have that freedom, and he does what he pleases. Now that doesn't mean that God is pleased with everything that happens. Therein lies one of the areas that sometimes is tricky for us as people. We might be confused with or struggle with the concept that bad things happen under God's control. Like if sovereign God rules everything, then why does he let sinful things happen and wicked things happen? Um, I've kind of kicked around. I don't know if I'm going to do it or not, but I might. Um, I have a, um, a book that I thought about going through for Sunday school. Now, the reason I've hesitated on it is I went through it for Wednesday night Bible study a few, like maybe three years ago. So I, but most people that are in Sunday school class weren't here for that. Um, it, it was opposite Awana. Some people working in Awanas and doing things there. Um, or maybe um, sometimes people, it's a little harder to get out later in the evening like that. So I'm kind of thinking what I might do in Sunday school because I think the only one that at least is regular coming in here that was part of that was Bruce. Um, so it might be a repeat for him and he might forgive me for that if I do it. But it was a book called Not By Chance, Learning to Trust a Sovereign God uh, by a man named Leighton Talbert. And it was just a really excellent book on the sovereignty of God. And you learn things, and directly from the scriptures you see the truth of it, because he does an excellent job supporting the things he says is showing from scripture. Let's take a look at God and how he sovereignly interacts with man and, and rules through the affairs of men, and how God uses bad things to accomplish good. Like, for example, one of the easiest ones to demonstrate is Jesus being crucified on the cross. Here, Jesus, who did nothing wrong, God allows him to be sentenced as a criminal to the death penalty at the hands of wicked people who hate God, even though they say they love him, and, uh, or the Roman official who's too cowardly to stand up against the mob, goes ahead and sentences him even though he thinks he's innocent. At the hands of these wicked people, something wicked happens, and yet most of the time we don't struggle with that one because we know that God's providing salvation to the entire, entire world by allowing that. Uh, but we, we still don't stop and say, oh, it was okay what they did. Crucify an innocent person, that was okay. We probably aren't inclined to say, well, in this situation it was okay. No, it wasn't okay to sentence a man to death for something that was untrue. And yet God, through that, has a great victory providing salvation to all. Now, that's something that is probably easier to see and accept. And yet, in all kinds of other situations that sometimes are less obvious, sometimes maybe as obvious, God is working good in the midst of bad. And so, of course, the book of Job's a, a good example of that where Job was allowed to suffer a lot of things. He hadn't done anything wrong, and God allows it. He allows it for his own glory. Um, and Job's asked to suffer things, uh, but he's asked to suffer things for God's glory in that. And it didn't make what Satan did right, and it didn't. but God will still accomplish good. So God has the freedom to do what he chooses, and when he does things, even, even if he allows wickedness, he's still a good God, and he's accomplishing great things in it. And um, sometimes as Christians, we, uh, sometimes we're looking, like when bad things happen, we're, we're looking for the meaning in it. Like, 
why did God let this happen? And I think uh, it could be helpful to broaden that past the immediate things that we see. It's not always for us personally, and it's not always known. you have a, a thought? Yeah, yeah, that's an excellent example of Joseph. And in that book I mentioned, not by chance, um, one of the chapters is devoted to Joseph as a case study in there. And it's just really interesting to go through that, not just simply to read the story of Joseph, but where he, he points out all these sovereign events going on um, there. So, yeah, that's an excellent example of Joseph on that one. All right, let me come to our next point. Omnipotence. And so, the omnipotence, which means the, the all-powerfulness of God, is illustrated in several verses here. Who is this king of glory? Psalm 24, 8 poses the question and then answers it. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And so that's the God we have, one who is powerful, now that verse doesn't say all-powerful, uh, but we have, uh, in similar fashion, we have a rhetorical question in two passages, Genesis 18.14 and Jeremiah 32.27 say almost the same thing. Genesis 18.14 says, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's meant to be rhetorical. The answer is no. Jeremiah 32.27, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is there anything too hard for me? And the answer again is no. Uh, there's nothing that can stop God from carrying out his will and nothing to keep him from having the freedom to do it because he's all-powerful. Well, the, those are kind of rhetorical questions, but actually the Jeremiah 32 passage answers it in a verse before 27. So the rhetorical question came later, but the answer was already really said. Jeremiah 32 verse 17 says... Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. And so there's nothing too hard from God. Now, you know, skeptics might want to poke holes. I'm not going to spend much time thinking about this thought, but they might want to poke holes of that saying things like, well, then can God sin? Well, no, he can't. Oh, well, then something's too hard for him. No, this idea of nothing too hard from God is God could do anything he wants to do, but he's not going to want to do anything that's um, against his own character. God could do anything he wants to do. Can God sin? No, because that's against his character. Um, you and I can sin because it's not against our character. We have that sin nature within us that we struggle with that we inherited from Adam. But no, God cannot sin. Uh, so this idea of all-powerfulness doesn't mean God can do anything. Or someone might think, come up with something they think is a clever little question. Well, if God can do anything, then can he make um, a round square? <laughs> well, yeah, that's my def... I mean, maybe he could. He can draw something round and then call it a square. <laughs> so maybe make a round square. That's, you know, sometimes mankind thinks he's clever with goofy questions like that. But the answer is there's nothing too hard uh, for God. And as I... Uh, advance this to the next point, I want to 
uh, though, keep a little bit on God's omnipotence and tie a bunch of these together. I'm sure glad that God is omnipotent. I'm glad that God is everywhere present. And I'm glad that God is all-knowing or omniscient. And I'm glad that God is immutable or unchangeable. And then I'm glad of other things that we've seen about the character of God. He's loving, just, righteous, and holy. He's truthful. He's trustworthy. Because if these things were not true, a God that tells me in Scripture that here's how you can become a Christian, have your sin problem taken care of, how you can be forgiven. Well, wait a minute. What if he's changed his mind? No, he doesn't, because he's unchangeable. Well, what if he only thought that was the way of salvation, but there was something he didn't know? Wait, he's all-knowing. What if he wasn't everywhere present, meaning there's something going on somewhere, he wasn't able to be there to see that. Therefore, he probably really doesn't know everything, because there's places he was not aware of. Therefore, maybe he thought this would be a way of addressing the sin problem, but there was something he didn't know about. No, he's everywhere present. What if he has every good intention? He's everywhere present. He's all-knowing. He doesn't change. He loves mankind. He offers salvation. But what if he just lacks the power to actually carry out what he wanted to do? See, if any of these attributes of God were not true, we would stand in a very uncertain position before God. And, man, death would be scary. I mean, death's already a little bit scary from a human standpoint. I mean, I haven't faced it yet. But I'm just thinking, just even for Christians, it's not fun to face death. It, It is an unknown for us. And yet we can stand with some confidence about what's going to happen to us when we die, but that's only as confident as our confidence in God. And if if God's not who he says he is, or if these attributes are not true, then all of a sudden we're not so confident about things after all. And uh, so if we're ever struggling with our salvation, I think that the only way that that is not a struggle is if we have confidence in God himself. Because that's really what it comes down to. Uh, one of the verses I, I found very instructive and very helpful uh, to me is the book of Galatians chapter 3. Uh, the first few verses of Galatians chapter 3. Um, I'll paraphrase here. I don't know if I have it memorized enough off the top of my head to say it exact. Uh, but he, he, he says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put thoughts in your mind that are troubling your mind? Okay. Um, I would ask you this question. Did you begin to become a Christian by the, the works of the law, the hearing of the law, or by the, the faith? Well, it's a rhetorical question. But then he says, having be, the next verse, having begun by faith, do you now think that you are made perfect or complete in the flesh? And what I think is encouraging instructed to me about that is this okay um, are you a christian okay does god love you and are are you accepted by him is your relationship with him okay do you think you're going to do a bunch of good works and that's how you're going to get on good god's good side and 
Well, you came to him by faith in the first place, and it's by faith that you rest upon for your relationship with him after that. Now, good works are good things. We ought to do that. But the good works is not what makes us acceptable to God. It was that death of Jesus in the first place that wiped away our sin. That's where our confidence is. Not because, well, I'm not sure, did I pray, pray my prayer good enough when I asked for salvation? Did I say the right words? Did I mean it enough? It's, it's too much of a me focus. Wait a minute, God said that if you call upon him, you shall be saved. Did he mean that when he said that? Did you really call upon God? Well, I called upon him. I'm just not sure if I called upon him good enough. Well, did, either you called on him or you didn't. Um, did you approach him for a gift of salvation? Were you depending on yourself when you did that? Well, if you were depending on God's sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and you were calling out to him to accept that gift of salvation, our salvation and our confidence in it is on God. Trusting God. Faith in God. Trusting God. Because if we can't trust God on that, then there's nothing else that's going to help us with that. He, he is the source of salvation He's the one that's told us how it's going to be done. We have no more confidence than God himself, which is why I think it's, it's encouraging to me and hopefully to you to come back through and study the character of God, even if we already knew these things, just to be reminded of it. Um, we have here, and I'll finish off, There's uh, the last one's here uh, rather quickly, I think, because um, we're out of time. But God's perfection means that God completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any qualities that would be desirable for him. God's not lacking in anything. He has everything that he should have. And so therefore, he is perfect. Uh, Matthew 5.48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father is in heaven. Uh, Father which is in heaven is perfect. And so, uh, Psalm 18.30, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried or tested like metal in a fire. Okay? And so his ways are perfect. Okay? Now, perfection here, we can never actually achieve that like God, but that should be the goal. Okay? Uh, to be as complete in what we should be. The word perfect in the Bible sometimes has the idea of completeness and that we should be complete that way. Okay? And the last one is the word glory. And... This has uh, two aspects, God's honor or excellent reputation, such as Isaiah 43, 7. Every, uh, even everyone that is called by my name have I created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Or Romans three twenty three. for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's honor, God's excellent reputation, and he created man for his glory. Um, that he could be glorified through what he did. It can also carry the idea of a bright light that surrounds God's presence, like the Shekinah glory of God. That's, uh, the, she the word Shekinah doesn't appear in the Bible, but that's a, a Jewish term that describes the, the glory of God that we do read about in the Bible, uh, such as Exodus 24, verse 15 and following. Moses went up into the mountain, that'd be Mount Sinai, um, right around the time of the Ten Commandments and also when the golden calf was formed. And a cloud covered the mount and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud 
and the sight of the glory of the Lord, and this is from the, the children of Israel that were down, not up in the mountain when they were looking up, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. And so sometimes the glory of the Lord is referring to that. But um, so his God's glory is connected with his brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. Now, it's not really so much an attribute uh, as much as it is uh, God revealing you know, things about himself. Because okay? it's not really so much about God's own character that we're talking about. And we could also add this thought um, that this bright light wasn't God. It's something he created. God's a spirit. He's not an energy force. He's not made out of matter or energy. But he created a light and thunderings and things that were given to represent himself. Um, so, all right. Well, we didn't even cover all the things. Uh, there were other words, uh, such as another attribute that I didn't even put up in the slide, beauty. God is, has, there's a beauty to God. So there are other words even in uh, the book that um, would be other attributes, but I tried to pick a lot of the main ones uh, here. And hopefully it gives us a greater appreciation, love for the Lord of who he is. I thank God that he's a God of love and mercy, grace and justice, and that we don't have a God like some, you know, maybe some South Sea, South Pacific island group where they have a volcano God that they're all afraid of. And they're afraid he's going to devour them unless they do their sacrifice. I think, God, we don't have a God like that. Um, and thank God that the God we do have is actually the true God of the universe. And uh, thank God that he revealed himself in scripture and that we can, we can have a relationship with him. All right, we'll end our time and get ready. For